he happened to find someone who won him five. I think without Brady, he's going to find a way to win two or three with a very good, competent quarterback. But uh, he lucked out a little bit. But he was also uh, better than, than just about everyone else in the NFL at attention to detail, special teams, situational football. And, and that's why he is, I think, the greatest coach of all time. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 14 years, 500 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the Business News Podcast section on iTunes. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. Well, thanks for joining us on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. Our guest this week, Ian O'Connor. He is a senior writer for ESPN. He's also author of the best-selling book, Belichick, available at bookstores now, and it's on the best-selling list. And Bill Belichick, a polarizing figure in the sports world. A lot of people have discussed him in the past. I'm not sure anyone's taken quite the look that this book is taking, and Ian O'Connor worked a long time on it, talked to 350 or more people, so we'll have him on to talk about Bill Belichick, and uh, I'm excited to discuss that. This week's edition of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Firing your GM a week before the season started, like Robert Sarver, the owner of the Suns, did with Ryan McDonough. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR to hire the right person. I'm joined in studio by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? Doing good. Uh, baseball's heating up. As as of this recording, we got a couple advanced teams, so that's kind of fun. Yeah, you know, I thought it'd be more exciting. We talked about that last week, but uh, the teams in the first round are kind of yeah. mowing through the teams, you know, and I guess we're really, the cream is rising to the top yeah, here, Griggs. For sure, yeah. And uh, <laughs> obviously we've got Dodgers, Brewers, and the NLCS as of this recording We've got Houston Astros who look pretty much unbeatable at this point. Their pitching is ridiculous, timely hitting, and they're going to take on the winner of the Yankees Red Sox. Red Sox lead that series two to one as we record this. So, you know, I think we're going to get the four best teams in baseball in the final four. Yeah, which is cool. I mean, that game uh, we were, I was watching last night, 16 to one, Boston put it to New York. Worst playoff loss for Yankees ever. And most runs ever scored on the road in a playoff game by the Red Sox. Yeah, so, crazy. Yeah, historic game. Yep. Um, another thing that took place, Drew Brees is now the leader in passing yards in NFL history. Uh, you know, he's not usually one of the guys that people talk about as the greatest quarterback ever. They're always talking about Brady or Peyton Manning or Brett Favre or people like that. Drew Brees isn't usually in that conversation, but statistically... You've got to put him in there. And, you know, it was ironic that he gets the record on a 62-yard touchdown pass. And the thing I liked is the response on social media afterwards. So athletes from all sports weighing in, congratulating Drew Brees. But Peyton Manning had a video in the can. (laughs) And it was very funny and tongue-in-cheek done only the way Peyton Manning could do it. But it was 
cool that they had a lot of that stuff locked and loaded and ready to go for when Breeze broke the record. Yeah, I thought it was cool. What a cool night for Breeze too. I mean, he, he's such a class act. I mean, you just the interviews, you know, off the field when it was when it was over, just you know, giving credit to everybody but himself, and you know, he's just one of those guys that no drama. A great talent has just been so impressive with New Orleans, and I just love how he handled himself. And I'm so excited that he that he's the guy that broke the record. Well, and everyone talks about Tom Brady as being the guy with the chip on his shoulder, the guy who went drafted late. What about Drew Brees? Drew Brees was not considered much of a prospect coming out of Purdue in college. Uh, the Chargers had him for a few years on their roster, and they got rid of him. The Dolphins looked primed to sign him, and they didn't because they said he. You know, didn't pass the physical after shoulder surgery, and the Saints took a chance on him. And boy, that may have been the best free agent signing in NFL history by the Saints when they signed Drew Brees. And the thing that I'll remember Drew Brees for as much as anything, and I tweeted this out, what he did for the city of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and how he rallied people and didn't just rah-rah it, he got the wealthiest people in that region together and literally helped rebuild that city. Other than LeBron James and what he meant to the city of Ohio, or the the state of Ohio and the city of Cleveland, I'm not sure I've seen an athlete in my lifetime that has meant more to his city than Drew Brees did to New Orleans. And it's not because he's from New Orleans, but it's because he adopted New Orleans and he stepped up big time when New Orleans needed him most after Hurricane Katrina. And now to see him turn into statistically one of the greatest quarterbacks ever, you're right. He's a great guy and he deserves all of the, the good things that are coming his way. Let's look at a list that Forbes put out this week, Griggs. Uh, the wealthiest owners in team sports in North America. So this isn't worldwide. This is North America. Number one on the list, I was kind of surprised by this. Mm-hmm. I mean, not shocked, but surprised. Right. Steve Ballmer. And he, you know, he made his money at Microsoft. He's the owner of the Clippers. And I wasn't shocked that he was number one. What I was shocked at is that he's double number two. So right. he comes in at $42.3 billion. Next closest owner is Paul Allen, who owns the Seahawks and the Trailblazers. I used to work for him. And uh, $20.3 billion. So huge gap drigs between one and two. And that's what surprised me, too. When you sent me that list yesterday, I was like looking through. I'm like, wow, there's $22 billion difference between one and two. That's quite a, a jump. And then uh, David Tepper, uh, Charlotte Panthers, is number three. And there's you know a pretty good distance. He's 11.6. And then every, as you see down the list, it's a lot closer. But those top three are really separate. Yeah, they are. So $42.3 billion for Steve Ballmer. $20.3 billion for Paul Allen, $11.6 billion for David Tepper, who, as you mentioned, recently purchased the Charlotte Panthers. Uh, number four, Philip Anschutz, $11.3 billion. He owns the LA Kings and the LA Galaxy. Number five, Mickey Arison, $9.4 billion. He owns Carnival Cruise Lines and the Miami Heat. Stan Kroenke, I thought he would be higher on this list. Number six, $8.5 billion. So that's the Rams. Arsenal, the Denver Nuggets, the Colorado Avalanche. I would think he's going to move up into the top three. Me too. When they get that new stadium built yeah. in Los Angeles. And the Rams I, are phenomenal right now. I right. Mean, they're, they're selling tickets like crazy. Yep. Uh, Mr. Khan is number seven on the list, $7.6 billion. 
he owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. And then Stephen Ross is tied at seventh. He owns the Miami Dolphins, seven point six billion. Stephen Ross is someone I've met previously and obviously got a lot going on in real estate and mm-hmm. things outside of sports. Dan Gilbert comes in at number nine, seven point one billion. He owns Quicken Loans and the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's someone I would think would drop because you've got yeah. to think now that LeBron is gone, the value of the Cavaliers is going to drop right. by a few hundred million at least. And then number 10, again, a little bit of a surprise to me, Jerry Jones, $6.9 billion, owns the Dallas Cowboys. I would have thought he'd be higher on the list. Yep. Number 11, and we're not going to go through the whole list, but Robert Kraft, $6.6 billion, owns the New England Patriots and the New England Revolution. So that's the list from Forbes, basically the top 11 wealthiest owners in U.S. sports. Um, some other ones that kind of surprised me, and it's funny because if you get down to like 42 on the list, you know, it's people who have like $2.1 billion. Jeffrey Lurie, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. It's like they're poor, Greg. Yeah. You it's only 2.1. <laughs> I feel bad for them. Yeah, $2.1 <laughs> billion. Where are they going to find their next meal? Like, how are they going to survive oh, only making $2.1 billion and uh, being 42nd on the list? It's funny because I thought when you were saying the same thing about Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones, both, if you would ask me this list without seeing it, I would have said they were probably top five, six, seven. So that is kind of surprising. They're down, you know, 10, 11, 6.9 billion, but uh, you never know. I think this interesting to see if we look at this next year, if anything has moved around. Yeah. And another guy who's well known that's on this list, Mark Cuban, came in at, at number 24, $3.9 billion. Obviously, he's on Shark Tank, he owns the Dallas Mavericks. He's gone through some uh, PR nightmares recently and reshuffled the staff at the Dallas Mavericks after going through that. But a lot of people know Mark Cuban. He comes in at number 24 on this list, $3.9 billion. So that's the list from Forbes, Griggs. When we come back, we're going to talk to Ian O'Connor. Bill Belichick, one of the most polarizing figures in all of U.S. sports, Ian has written a really interesting book on Bill Belichick. We'll talk to him about that. Coming up next, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. My guest is Ian O'Connor. He is the author of the best-selling book, Belichick. The book is available on Amazon.com and at bookstores everywhere. He's also a senior writer for ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at Ian underscore O'Connor, Ian, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Oh, good, Brian. How are you? Good. I really enjoyed your book 
maybe you can give us a little bit of a, a background on why you decided to write a book on Bill Belichick. Obviously, he's a polarizing figure, but what led you to want to write this book? Well, I think, uh, Brian, he's the most fascinating uh, figure in American sports. I don't think there's a close second. Uh, I think even people who don't like him or even despise him around the country believe that there's a certain intrigue and mystery about him and are interested in him as a character. And I think uh, a large part of that stems from the fact that he plays that one-dimensional character every day in his news conferences. I think there's a strategic reason for that. But I, I wanted to sort of identify how he became, in my opinion anyway, the greatest NFL coach ever, but also humanize him in the process. That was important to me because I figured that there was a different Bill Belichick that his friends and associates saw away from the stadium, and that was indeed the case. So that was my uh, objective in interviewing 350 people for this project, and hopefully I pulled it off. No, I think you did. And one of the things I found fascinating was you're uncovering kind of those early years, whether it was relationship with his father, Steve, who's a football coach, or when he was at Wesleyan. Some of the things that went into making Bill who he is today, you uncovered those. So great job with that. Well, thank you. And, and to me, that's the essence of the book, really, is the storytelling on Bill's life and his development as a person and, and as a coach. And a lot of the attention initially when excerpts from the book came out were uh, naturally revolving around the Brady-Belichick fracture uh, last year and their partnership and relationship and how it's built into the offseason, and rightfully so. That was very important, but that's not the heart of the book. It's about how Bill became who he became and why. And I opened the book with an anecdote about his father for a reason, because I thought it was very profound. And Steve Belichick had served in the U.S. Navy during World War II, and on Okinawa he was in an officer's club when one of the first African-American officers in the U.S. Navy walked in, Samuel Barnes, who later became an executive with the NCAA, and every white officer in the club walked out except for Steve Belichick, who spent time with him, befriended him. They became roommates for a period of time, according to uh, Barnes's daughter, who I spoke with for the book, Olga. And she said the Belichick name really resonates in her family for that act of kindness and human decency. And I think in Annapolis, Bill came out of a household that was way ahead of its time in terms of race relations in the country. So I think a lot of people over the years have wondered how an old-school curmudgeon like Bill connects with the modern athlete, particularly the African-American athlete. And I think, just look at the... Uh, he was raised by two really good people who had strong values, and I think that did shape him as a, as a human being. Ian, one of the things you point out in the book, and, and we'll get into this more in a minute, but... He didn't connect with the players on the Cleveland Browns, but he learned how to connect with the players on the New England Patriots. What changed for him? It's a good question. I think uh, he admitted after his Cleveland experience, that first championship season with the Patriots, before they played the Rams in that epic Super Bowl, he admitted to reporters that he tried to act too much like Bill Parcells, his former boss with the Giants, and just didn't have the charisma and leadership personality to pull it off. And I think... Parcells, though he could be really tough to deal with in practice and in games if you were a player or an assistant coach, behind the scenes he was really good in human relations and wrapping his arm around a player and making sure that player knew, even if he just reamed him out in a practice, how much he cared about him as a person. And I think Belichick just didn't do that in Cleveland. And The Browns players I talked to said they never got the sense from him that he cared about them as people, just as, as athletes. So 
in New England, he realized he had to work on that. He had to get better at that. He had to think more in big picture terms and delegate more so he could he could address issues like that. And so uh, behind closed doors, one-on-one, he was just better relating to people on a human level. And Anthony Pleasant, who was a defensive lineman in Cleveland with him and also in New England, said in 2001 already Bill was much better in that department. And he looked him in the eye and said, I want to win a championship for you. And, Brian, I can tell you that, and I talked to a lot of Cleveland Browns players, not one of them ever felt that way about Belichick. So he had crossed that threshold in Foxborough and and finally became really a complete head coach. So interesting because your your book points out, and I think people forget this, how close he was in 2001 to being fired by the Patriots. They were (laughs) not doing well. I look back and you wonder, like, how has the course of NFL history, not just Bill Belichick, not just Patriots history, but NFL history, how has it changed by that Mo Lewis hit on Drew Bledsoe that opened the door for Tom Brady to become the quarterback of the Patriots? It's amazing to think, right, what would have happened if Mo Lewis never put that hit on Bledsoe. I was on the field that day. That's the loudest hit I've ever heard uh, on an NFL field, and... In trot Tom Brady, six-round pick, looked like Ichabod Crane, and <laughs> who would have thought thunk it, right? And, and the rest is history. But Bill was 5-11 and that first year in New England. Then he was 0-2. Bledsoe's out. Now the $100 million quarterback and franchise player is gone. It looked like Belichick was heading toward oblivion, another 5-11 and season. I know, and I report this in the book, Kraft was already worried. He didn't want to fire Bill after two years, but he was worried he might have to. He had a new stadium that was being built that he had to fill. And Belichick and his staff, they were worried, too, uh, about what was to come. I will say this, though. Belichick and others in that organization who were close to him did believe that Tom Brady was ready to play and were already trying to figure out how to get him under center without offending the owner who had just given Bledsoe $100 million. So uh, I don't know when that moment of truth was going to happen if Mo Lewis doesn't deliver that hit. But I think at some point, Brady would have gotten in there, but the season might have been gone by then. It might have been too late. So it, it's a great what if, but uh, thankfully for for Belichick anyway, because he was not going to get a third chance as a head coach. If, if he got fired there, that was going to be it. And Tom Brady, thankfully for him, walked into his life just in the nick of time. Yeah, I mean, it really is amazing. You just answered my question. So if he loses his job with the Patriots, he's probably a coordinator for life at best. He's not a head coach again, right? Right. He, he's going to be Wade Phillips, uh, basically a guy who had head coaching opportunities, but is known as one of the best coordinators. I think Bill would have gone down as one of the best defensive coordinators ever. As it was, the Giants already considered him one of the three best assistants they ever had, along with Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry, which is a pretty, pretty good group to be a part of. But the Giants never saw Belichick as a head coach. They didn't think he had the charisma and leadership capability to pull that off, which is why they didn't hire him. And when he failed in Cleveland, they were not surprised. And they thought that Robert Kraft made a mistake when he hired him in 2000. As did I. I wrote a column at the time saying it was a bad hire. And that column has haunted me for 18 years. (laughs) One of the inspirations for this book, really, was finding out just why I was as wrong as I was, along with I would say at the time, the majority, the vast majority of people in the NFL thought that was a bad hire. And Belichick, I don't subtract from his legacy, Brian, the fact that Tom Brady walked into his life and became arguably, anyway, the greatest football player ever. 
I think every great coach has needed a special player as the centerpiece of his or her program, whether it's John Wooden and Lou Alcindor and Bill Walton or, or Red Auerbeck, Auerbach and Bill Russell or Joe Torrey with Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera. That always happens. And without that, you can't succeed at that high a level. So uh, Belichick, if he found another quarterback who was very good, I think he would have won multiple championships. He happened to find someone who won him five. I think without Brady, he's going to find a way to win two or three with a very good, competent quarterback. But uh, he lucked out a little bit, but he was also uh, better than, than just about everyone else in the NFL at attention to detail, special teams, situational football, and, and that's why he is, I think, the greatest coach of all time. You know, it's interesting. I'm looking at Greg Popovich's career right now and what's happening with him in San Antonio and the fact that he and Kawhi Leonard couldn't make things work. And I'm watching Bill Belichick and Tom Brady in New England. And you're starting to see a little bit of the the bloom come off the rose with teams that have been amazingly good for, for a few decades now. Do you ever compare and contrast in your mind Belichick and, and Greg Popovich? Because when I look at where they are at this stage of their careers, I think they're in pretty similar places. Yeah, I think it's a good comparison. And, and it's funny because I think those are two organizations in sports we never thought would deal with the kind of dysfunction or internal conflict that they had to deal with basically in the same year. It was amazing that it happened at the same time. Right, Those two, right, the Patriot way and the Spurs way, we never thought we'd see that. But we did. The difference is, obviously, Brady is still in New England, and he's still playing at a high level for Belichick, and Kawhi Leonard is no longer in San Antonio. And I think that uh, Robert Kraft made it clear to Belichick that Tom Brady was going to retire Patriot, and he was not going to be traded, and and whether that uh, he would end the Patriot, whether that was age 45, 46, or 47. I don't think, and I I don't have sources telling me that he said the words to Belichick, you have to trade Jimmy Garoppolo, but I think Belichick took from that that he had no choice but to do that. I guess the question is, why did he only get a second-round pick for him? But they made the right choice, and time will tell if San Antonio... I think San Antonio felt like they had no choice. With Brady, there was a choice. As much as Brady thought, and my sources told me, as late as late March, he was still thinking of walking away rather than playing for his head coach one more season. I still think they made the right decision because Brady was the league MVP. He's won five titles. He got to the Super Bowl. He set a Super Bowl record. He's still at such a high level that trading him and keeping Garoppolo, to me, would have been the wrong move, despite their difference in age. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. You know what's not smart? The way UFC handled the McGregor-Khabib post-fight melee. You know what else isn't smart? Trading Khalil Mack and then watching your Oakland Raiders lose four of their first five games. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR. ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now back to our conversation. Ian, one of the things in sports now 
is, and I'm actually really good friends with David Fisdale, the new coach of the Knicks. And and to me, he's a model of today's modern coach. He he really communicates well with today's player. He understands the analytics that the GMs and the owners want. And I look at Belichick and I go, is he going to be able to coach for another five or ten years? Or, you know, when Brady rides off into the sunset, is that the end of, of Bill? How do you see this coming to an end, this amazing partnership that Belichick and Brady have had? Well, by the way, I think Fisdale was a very good hire. I, I've covered the Knicks for many years, and I thought, you know, he sort of made his mistakes like Belichick did in Cleveland. He made his on somebody else's watch, right. and now I think he'll learn from his in New York and be a really good coach. Um, I think Bill's a young 66 who's got five years left in him, really. I, I don't think he's go- going to give up coaching anytime soon. Brady, on the other hand, I, I think, well, I, I feel pretty much the same way. I had a conversation with him on the phone last spring where we were talking, never mind age 45, but him playing at 46, 47. So I think he's got a lot of years left. It's possible they could go out together. And I know Bill had told Associates some years ago he was looking forward to the day where he could try to win a championship with a different quarterback, nothing against Brady. He realizes how he enhanced his own legacy. But the one alternate scenario, Brian, that I see to that that's plausible to me would be I think they're going to win one more ring together. And let's say that happens in the next two to three years. I think with number six breaking the tie with Vince Lombardi, maybe Belichick says, you know what, it's time to hand Brady off to Josh McDaniels, who deserves a second chance as a head coach after he failed in Denver and after we convinced him to not take the Colts job this past off season, And then Belichick becomes president of football operations, and he lets Brady and McDaniels, who, have a, who do have a warm relationship, finish out those last two, three years together and then let McDaniels find and develop that next quarterback. That, to me, is plausible. Outside of that, I think Belichick's going to coach into his early 70s, even though he has said otherwise. Hmm. Also in your book, I think you have a quote in there about Brady saying, you know, if if we could get divorced at this point, maybe that's something to consider. And I know I'm paraphrasing that, but, you know, I look at from Tom Brady's perspective, yes, he wants to keep playing, but do you see a point where these two maybe gnaw on each other to a point where it turns out to be a a Greg Popovich, Kawhi Leonard type of fractured relationship? See, I, I think it's possible. Yeah, and Brady, it wasn't Brady who said it. It was a source who had uh, very uh, intimate knowledge of the relationship between Brady and Belichick, who said, uh, again, as late as late March, that uh, Brady was thinking of, yeah, filing for divorce and either retiring or asking for his release rather than play for Belichick again. Now, that's a, a pretty tumultuous moment for that partnership to survive, and they barely survived it. But I think now they're back to functioning again. Could there be another flare-up? Yes, of course. Uh, but I actually think that they had to get past this one moment, and they did, and now they're going to function and be... It's always been a transactional relationship. There's never been any love or warmth. They've never gone out to dinner even once. And when Brady has needed the love and affection, he's gone to Robert Kraft. That's the transformational relationship he has in the organization, and he still has that. So I think they can uh, function together uh, as a transactional uh, partnership, win one more time, I don't know about two, I think that's asking for, for, for too much, and and be okay the rest of the way. But yes, it's possible something else with Alex Guerrero could, could flare up or something along those lines, and then we're having a conversation, maybe comparing them to Popovich and Kawhi Leonard. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. I had heard this story before, but it was great to read it in your book. The story of Tom Brady carrying some pizza boxes, and you know, he's a rookie, and Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, walks by him, and Brady says something to the effect of, I'm Tom Brady, and I'm the best decision this organization has ever made. I look back on that, and you just go, gosh, this guy had the bravado and the confidence, and he knew that he was going to be one of the greats. Yeah, uh, he. Uh, it's interesting that Belichick in that draft took six guys ahead of the greatest player ever. <laughs> God. And he thought six players were going to be better New England Patriots than Tom Brady. Those six combined for zero Pro Bowl appearances in their careers. Uh, what's, what's interesting about Brady's bravado is that he had a tough career at Michigan. Five years with Lloyd Carr. He started out as seventh string. By the time he got to first string, Lloyd Carr was trying to give his job away to Drew Henson, who was the number one high school player in the country. I mean, it was not easy. And so when you consider 17, 18 years at Belichick, you're talking about 23 years of unrelenting coaching that Brady has, has dealt with, which is part of the reason why I think he got worn down last year uh, by that. And so, but uh, it is—it's it's an amazing story. Uh, the New York Giants had a scout named Whitey Walsh, who was begging the Giants to take Brady in the fourth or fifth round, and they didn't do it. Imagine the change of, in the course of football history if that happened. Uh, but it didn't. I guess uh, well, the Giants beat him in two Super Bowls, so I guess they're okay with that. But uh, Brady and Belichick became, despite the lack of affection in that relationship over the years, it's the best, most successful partnership in the history of the NFL. So I think it's worked out okay. I would say so. Uh, two big things in your book and, and certainly large imprints on the career of Bill Belichick, Spygate and Deflategate. Where do we stand with those things? And again, I thought your book did a really good job of addressing those time periods in, in Bill Belichick's career. Well, thank you. I wanted to be as fair as possible in both those cases, obviously, and really with everything in the book. But Deflategate, to me, I thought there was... I thought Bill was credible in his explanation. He had nothing to do with it if it happened. The Patriots now contest it never uh, did happen, of course. The league says otherwise. And uh, I, I thought Spygate was the more interesting case to really examine, to go back. And I took three years to study Belichick and his program and dynasty. And I did not think in looking at it, uh, as thoroughly as I did, that it was that significant an advantage because Belichick was right when he said 80,000 people can see that coach's signals that we're filming. Uh, it, the filming of it expedited and streamlined the process. The Patriots were never found to have used it in real time in the same game. Whether or not they did, I think some people suspect maybe, but they weren't caught doing that. And the risk to his reputation and to that of his organization, to me, was greater than the reward. And particularly when Eric Mangini in 2007, as head coach of the Jets, warned him not to do it in their building, and he did it anyway, that was a reckless gamble. And if Belichick cooperated with this project, which he did not, I would have loved to ask him that question. Why didn't you just shut down the operation for at least a week rather than risk everything in the way America would look at you and, and your organization by doing it? And, and, and sure enough, they got caught, and the camera was confiscated. And I have a story in my book that's never been written before about three officers, uh, law enforcement officers, who were in the middle of, of Spygate that day. One was an FBI agent, another was an undercover cop who had infiltrated the Genovese crime family, and another was a state trooper in New Jersey. And those three refereed a 25-minute or so dispute between the Jets and the Patriots fighting over that camera. Patriots uh, Security Chief Mark Briggs arguing that it was stolen equipment and he wanted it back. 
and the Jets saying it's corporate espionage and this camera belongs in the hands of the league. And these three men in the middle, they decided after 25 minutes, we're going to give it to the league. Had they given it back to the Patriots, Spygate never happens. Chances are, but uh, that's not the way it played out. Yeah, you look at the money and the resources, and you know the lawyers did really well in both of these cases, that was devoted to Spygate and Devlategate, and, and it's really, it's amazing. I mean, it, it, it's, you wonder, you, I look back and I go, was that a complete waste of time and energy? But obviously the NFL felt strongly about the fact that these things were jeopardizing the integrity of the game, I guess. Well, I, yeah, I don't think Spygate was a waste because the NFL had sent out memos telling teams to stop doing this. And in the early 2000s and certainly in the 90s, other teams were filming, and there was a lot of surveillance and uh, Spygate-like tactics going on in the league. It wasn't just Belichick. And he had done some stuff in Cleveland back then. It was Al Davis's league, so if he didn't, you were going to be falling behind. Uh, but Deflategate, you can argue... Uh, was a, a colossal waste of time. It certainly carried on too long, and the Patriots proved that, yeah, if they were doing it well afterward, they played at a higher level with uh, properly inflated footballs. So I think the Flategate and Seth Wickersham and Don Van Natta with uh, ESPN.com did a terrific job spelling this out, was really what they called a makeup call that a lot of owners around the NFL were really upset that Goodell, in their opinion, went light on the Patriots in Spygate, destroyed the tapes and notes. They never should have done that. The league and teams that had been uh, impacted by that should have had a chance to review that material. That didn't happen. So the owners around the league wanted a pound of flesh out of Belichick and Kraft with the Flategate, and they really pushed Goodell to go for the jugular in that case. And I think that's why it became the, the national scandal and, and in some ways circus that it really became. Ian, before I let you go, you mentioned at the top of the interview, you interviewed over 350 people for this book. What was the most surprising piece of information that someone you interviewed shared with you? Well, I just think, uh, first of all, his Wesleyan years uh, in Connecticut, those four college years, had never really been examined to any great degree. So I found a lot of fascinating, informative stuff in those four years and talking to his fraternity brothers, his football teammates, his lacrosse teammates. And it was just a, an empty area in his life that had just not been explored before. Uh, but I would say the most surprising thing was just how big the gap was between workplace Bill and human Bill away mm. from the facility with his friends and associates. And just them describing acts of common decency and kindness and generosity and how he can be charming and engaging, a figure that most of America would have a hard time believing even exists. So uh, I think the gap between that figure and the man we see in those news conferences is, is more extensive than I had uh, realized when I started this project three years ago. But it seems like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but with Belichick and with Popovich, that's part of their persona now, right? Like, they do these press conferences. Popovich does the in-between quarter interviews, and you're just, like, going, oh, my God, I feel so bad for that reporter or the person having to interview Popovich. It's the same way with both of them. Doesn't it seem like more of an act at this point than it does yeah. anything authentic? Yeah, I do. I, I think with Popovich, I don't quite understand what he's accomplishing with those sideline reporters uh, other than just uh, perpetuating the act. Belichick, to me, there is a strategy behind what he does in his news conferences and has done for all those years in New England, uh, going back to really 2000. 
And that is it's setting an organizational tone for his players that we are in the business of gathering information. We are not in the business of sharing it. Therefore, you will follow suit and watch me because he knows they watch his press conferences. And whenever he's asked questions, he's going to give as little information as humanly possible. And he wants his players to do the same, which they do. And I know for a fact, Brian, that Belichick has competed against coaches in the NFL that he believes have been too candid with the media during the week, and he's used that information against them on Sunday or Monday night, whatever it might be. So uh, he runs his program and organization with the opposite approach, and it's worked out quite well for him. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I would say about Bill Belichick is, obviously, I agree with you. I think he's the greatest NFL coach that I've seen in my lifetime. I wasn't around for, for Vince Lombardi. But... Whenever you watch the Patriots play, they're prepared. I can't remember the last time I saw them look unprepared and just totally out of a game. Even if they have some mistakes, they look like they were prepared and well-coached for that game. And I look at some of these other NFL teams, and it's a stark difference. So, you know, he's always well-prepared. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I talked to Chad Pennington, who's the only quarterback to uh, win the AFC East since uh, Brady took over, not named Tom Brady. He did it for the Jets once, and he did it for the Dolphins uh, a second time. And he said the only time he ever saw the Patriots ill-prepared for anything in his many years competing against them was, I believe it was 10 years ago, they ran the Wildcat against the Patriots. And he said, I actually saw doubt on their faces. The defense wasn't ready for it. He said the only time a Belichick defense was not ready for something. And they won that game, and they scored oh, I want to say three, maybe four touchdowns out of the Wildcat formation. And he, he, he got such a kick out of actually seeing that look of doubt on Patriots' defensive players' faces. Um, but you're right. And, and I went to the high school where Vince Lombardi coached in New Jersey, St. Cecilia's and Englewood, and it's hard for me to put anyone ahead of Lombardi. But when you think in the modern NFL where the schedule, the draft, free agency, and the salary cap are all designed to prevent you from having a dynasty, and he did it anyway – that's why I put Belichick at number one. Ian O'Connor, the author of the best-selling book, Belichick. It's available at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can follow Ian on Twitter at Ian underscore O'Connor. Ian, great job with the book, and thanks for joining us again on Sports Business Radio. Uh, my pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Bringing you the biggest names in sports business. Without further ado, we all know this gentleman. Let's give David Stern a big round of applause. Let's welcome the president of the NCAA, Mark Emmer. Give him a hand. Let's give a big hand to USC alum and co-owner of the Lakers and president of the Lakers, Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. Thank you so, so much for having me, Brian. It was very, very kind, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Sir Charles, how are you? I'm doing good, man. How you doing this morning? Today's guest is Memphis Grizzlies head coach David Fisdale. You're the man, Barry. My guest is tennis icon Chris Albert. He was very interesting. You asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian. Pleased to welcome to the show... Kyrie Irving, the number one pick in the 2011 NBA Draft. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be joined by Pete Carroll, the executive VP of football operations and the head football coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Coach, how are you? Doing good. What's going on? Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. 
Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to Hadley Heck. She's a student athlete at Portland State University, and she's our new sports business radio intern. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our sports business radio roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. I want to welcome ZipRecruiter to our family of sponsors. Again, really happy to have them on board. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SBR. Happy to have them on board. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.